Hey, I'm Callum Ogilvie, and this is the very first episode of the Strathclyde Telegraph podcast. If you're not familiar with the Strathclyde Telegraph, it's a student-run newspaper out of Strathclyde University, and this year, the editor-in-chief is John Anthony DeZotto. A few weeks ago, I talked to John Anthony, who said he was excited for the podcast, but he said it in the same way that you would say you're excited to see your nephew's nativity play. When I reached out to him to ask if he'd like to make a voiceover for the start of this podcast, he said that he was in Luxembourg and he can't find a quiet place to record anything and he tried to downplay any suggestion I had of tax evasion. He asked me to explain what will be in the podcast every month when we release it, so here we go. This podcast will cover everything about Strathclyde University news, features, arts, we'll discuss films, interview musicians and review music. Every month, we will keep you up to date with what's happening at university, with things that you can be interested and excited about. We'll have guests to come in to chat about events and goings-on around Strathclyde, like a talk show. We are bringing multimedia journalism to Strathclyde Telegraph. Think of it as your way to know everything that's happening on campus. So, in the spirit of Halloween, we'll be covering some spooky-themed stories this week. Firstly, What exactly is on this Halloween at Strathclyde? We had Justin Bowie pop in to tell us. Halloween is just around the corner and that means there are plenty of events happening around campus. The Student Union will be hosting a Halloween Fright Night on October 31st. The Union will be filled up with DJs, karaoke, various scary movies being screened across different floors, in a costume competition with the winner taking home a prize of £200. Tickets for the Union in the Halloween night are being sold in advance on the Union's website for £3. On the night of the event, tickets will be sold for £5 at the door, with students with a gold card being able to enter for free. Throughout October, the University will continue to celebrate Black History Month with a variety of movie screenings and workshops taking place in the Union. The photo gallery Our Invisible Strength was launched at the start of the month and celebrates the contribution of African and Caribbean communities in Scotland. The display is located on level 6 in the Union and will remain open for those who are interested until the end of October. Moving slightly outside the Union to Glasgow as a whole, at the start of November there will be a free-for-all fireworks display returning to Glasgow Green for Guy Fawkes Night. From 5pm, stalls with food can be enjoyed as well as a fun fair, with a big firework display being shown at 7.30pm. Thanks Justin. Now, we all love a good horror movie this time of year. Whether it's re-watching a classic like The Shining, or something new like Hereditary, it's definitely something to get behind. Arguably, the most important piece of a good horror movie is the soundtrack, so Kirsty Crawford came in to tell us about their favourite movie soundtracks. Every good horror film needs a soundtrack. The screams of a long-forgotten actress paired with tubular bells, dark synthetic pop and orchestral triumphs. A necessary part of any horror movie, the soundtrack and score can make your Halloween movie extra spooky. This list omits some of the more notable title sequence in horror movies in order to bring you a rounded list of whole soundtracks that steal the show. The bass strings of Jaws, for example, the piercing shriek of the classic psycho shower scene, and tubular bells that still signal nothing short of demonic evil to the collected masses and the exorcist are great examples of these. Whilst being masterpieces, they are admitted in the attempt to bring you a list of the most collectively horrifying movie soundtracks. 
A Tale of Two Sisters is a beautiful and atmospheric Korean film following two sisters. Who would have guessed it? The 2004 film by Kim Ji-Woon uses orchestral scores and distressing sounds to add layers of deep sorrow, discomfort and paranoia to this perplexing film. The beauty of the melodies help to foreground the elusive supernatural threat in the film and the degeneration of the protagonist's reality and familial structures. House of a Thousand Corpses is a 2003 cult horror classic by musician Rob Zombie. The bizarre parody of the classics of the horror genre sees four young people on a road trip around the United States get into a spot of bother when picking up a hitchhiker and their car breaks down. The neon, psychedelic, satanic bloodbath that follows is backed by a magnificent soundtrack. Many of the main character themes are written by Zombie himself, using thick riffs, walls of sound and samples of screaming and speech, so well mixed that they become musical in their own right. Zombie sets these against all-American classics by country stars like Buck Owens and the creepily cute vocals of Helen Kane, even including Lionel Richie and Trina in the adapted brick house that runs with the credits. Suspiria, a 1977 Italian horror by Dario Argento, sees a young American attend ballet school in Munich, much to her detriment. As you might imagine, a movie focused on dance relies heavily on music. The soundtrack by prog rock band Goblin has attracted a great deal of critical acclaim since its release. Arguably the most unnerving soundtrack on this entire list, Goblin's blend of medieval orchestral sounds coupled with unsettling spoken word in the background sets the precedent for a highly affecting film. Goblin uses everything from sound bites, disturbing screams, vocalisation and aggressive tempo to employ chills in the Sargento classic. Widely held as one of the greatest horror soundtracks of all time by fans, this is not one to miss. Cannibal Holocaust 1980 by Ruggiero Diodato is among the era of 80s films that portray a very problematic version of usually South American native peoples. The documentarians that try to look into the tribe's ritualistic cannibal practices, oddly enough, don't have a fantastic time of it. The ensuing carnage is introduced by beautifully relaxing acoustic melodies which signal the artsy documentary style. This is then turned on its head as progressively more blood is spilled. Synthetically mixed classical scores are introduced to emphasise the tragic loss of life and the explicitly foreign situation the protagonists are in. The Lords of Salem, the little sister to the Devil's Reject series that starts with the House of Thousand Corpses, is a metal, artsy and thoroughly creepy look at the descendants of Salem's infamous witches. 
The 2012 film, also by Rob Zombie, contains a lot of rock and alternative classics due to the protagonist's vocation as a radio DJ. The Velvet Underground, Rush and Rick James are juxtaposed against harsh, rapid thrash metal, industrial electronic noise and an offence of warped, perverted orchestral scores that drive this hallucinatory, paranoia-inducing story of revenge. The Lord's theme, the main score of the film, that is of significant importance in the plot itself, is arguably the most horrible, offensive-sounding film theme ever composed. The effect is akin to nails on chalkboard, but the nails belong to an evil satanic witch monster that wants to hurt you in every imaginable way. Some other noteworthy choices are David Lynch's Eraserhead and the newer Hereditary, which can be added to this list of the creepiest, most horrifying and effective horror soundtracks to be enjoyed this Halloween. Thanks, Kirsty. Up next, continuing with the horror theme, is a piece by Andrew McKissick about the resurgence in really great, psychologically challenging new horror films and how they're taking over from the standard and lazy horror jump scare films that have been so prevalent over the last 10 years. Uh, so first of all, I'm going to give a shout out to Maisie, our film editor. She is fantastic and she did some really great work in helping pull this piece together. Um, so thanks, Maisie. Um, so many of the best critical performers in the horror genre today are dwarfed by the financial success of those which hold comparatively little critical credence. Whilst outliers such as A Quiet Place are both box office and critical successes, far more prevalent are bloated franchises packed with jump scares, many of which appear to have been chopped up and reassembled in a slightly different order from the predecessors. But why do audiences opt for franchised offerings like The Nun? What makes them more profitable than critical successes, Hereditary or It Comes at Night? We need only look at the Paranormal Activity franchise, an example of the formula A Quiet Place seems destined to fall victim to. The first movie in the series was a genre-changing hit with audiences and critics alike, grossing $139 million against a meagre $15,000 budget. It earns a scares through a slow build of tension and disconcerting scenes such as the iconic moment as protagonist, Katie, wakes in the middle of the night to stand lingering over her partner in bed for hours. By the time 2015's The Ghost I Mentioned was released, Everything the first entry had done successfully had been butchered. The franchise became a shambolic mess of jump scares and was consequently slaughtered by critics. The root of this can be traced back to Paramount adding a new theatrical ending to the original which was included in the film's wider release. It added a jump scare finale as a setup for the future instalments. Once the imagination had bled from the franchise in exchange for lazy moments of shock, paranormal activity became a safe financial investment. Similarly, franchises offer audiences the kind of safety that original concept just can't. The formulaic nature of franchise horror films grants ticket holders a feeling of comfort and familiarity. Originality doesn't always appeal when the option to step back into recognisable scares already exists. Take the recent entry into The Conjuring franchise, The Nun. The film's effectiveness hinges solely upon whether you find the appearance of the titular character scary. After that, it relies upon jump scares in order to frighten its audience. There's little imagination offered up in these lazy attempts to frighten, and this transfers to the viewer. It's momentary terror, driven by a sudden intrusion of noise, often without an accompanying, frightening image. Scared we may be, but the feeling passes. We're not asked to think too hard, and if we do, we're likely to dismantle a nonsensical plot. We leave the cinema with an adrenaline rush, but there's little to dissect, and no lasting effect on our psyche. In contrast, the horror of It Comes at Night is born from the unknown. It examines psychological degradation, 
as one family struggles to maintain their humanity under the threat of infection from an unseen enemy. The audience has given no information about the infection. We never see any creature or infected humans actively trying to hurt them. The tension is instead drawn out through a dubious friendship with another family and the resulting paranoia created. The film effectively approaches its world building with unsettling imagery, an atmospheric soundtrack and its placing of characters under extreme duress, all elements which linger long after the film ends. Yet the marketing for the film by production company A24 presents it like a creature horror, much more akin to 28 Days Later. This year's Hereditary issues a lethal injection of terror with its compelling depiction of a family unravelling in grief. It was billed as this generation's The Exorcist, and yet the nun grossed nearly $300 million more at the box office. Hereditary was also distributed by A24, with much of the promotional material portraying a more genetic movie seemingly revolving around a disturbed child. There's a correlation between packaging psychological horror films as formulaic and their poor performance with audiences. It suggests that we would rather take our chances with the spooky nun, which has a tangible presence, than the more abstract haunting presence of evil which is liable to linger in our minds. When presented with a film which is more challenging than initially promoted, audiences respond negatively. And this goes some way to explaining why A Quiet Place enjoyed such universal success. It managed to blend unnerving imagery and a tense atmosphere with an accessible story. There's undoubtedly a place for both the jump scare horror and more emotionally challenging horror. While some films will lean heavily on one or the other, the best manage to combine them, earning the scares which service a story that audiences are invested in, allowing the horror to haunt us long after the closing credits. That was Andrew McKissick. Up next, moving from the big screen to the small, writer Danielle Riddle came into the studio to discuss why she believed her favourite zombie horror TV show should be brought back from the dead. So about three weeks ago, I came across maybe the best news that I'd seen in a while. Dominic Mitchell, creator and writer of BBC Three's In The Flesh tweeted, considering crowdfunding for an In The Flesh 90 minute special, I know I said that this was off the table, but something has to happen. Don't give any money to unofficial sites, we will keep you all posted. If you're not familiar with In The Flesh, allow me to explain. It aired from 2013 to 2014, spanning two series and nine episodes. I had, an, had it all. Zombies, fantastic female characters, LGBT representation, and at its heart, an allegory for mental health, which should not make me want to close my eyes and shrivel up into a little ball. It amassed a large fan following, won a BAFTA, and yet in 2014, months after its second season had aired, it was cancelled. What followed was a touching fan response. Many of them began reaching out to other television networks on Dominic's behalf. Many started online petitions, hoping to change the BBC's mind. Hashtag Save in the Flesh even trended worldwide on Twitter for a little while, though to no avail. Many fans even reached out to Dominic with the idea of crowdfunding a third series or a 90-minute special in late 2014, which he was vehemently against. Four years have passed, however, and Dominic has at the very least become more open to this as a viable idea. I find myself really amazed by the response to this tweet. Four years is a long time to hold a torch for such a series, especially when you consider that the programme itself did not run for very long. However, this is evidence that In the Flesh really has, and still is, something special. When we think of zombie media, there is no escaping the truth that much of it is allegory for big subject matters, mental health, politics and society. But much of it is bogged down with tired character tropes and predictable plots. For many, In the Flesh was a breath of fresh air. The way the series approaches its subject matter, for example, is incredibly unique. 
We are not thrown into the midst of an apocalypse, rather we are thrown into the messy, uncertain aftermath of one wherein the dead have been medicated, rehabilitated, are in the process of being returned to civil society. In doing so, we are given a clear commentary on a whole host of issues ranging not, lim ranging not limited to coping with prejudice, some face for being different, or post-traumatic stress disorder, just to name a few. After four years, it appears the audience's ability to recognise these things in the storyline and its characters is what keeps them coming back to it. It is perhaps also what even keeps bringing in new fans. In recent years, we viewers have begun demanding more from our television viewing in terms of representation and dignity. When we see a character on screen who is part of a minority, we want to see them treated with care rather than with lazy stereotypes. When we are presented with someone who is suffering from a mental illness, we want the proper research done. Many of us want to feel represented in the media we consume as much as we want to escape, escape into it. For many fans in the flesh did all of this. Dominic has been passionate about continuing his story since the moment the second series ended at its airtime. He has held that passion for four years since, at times providing brief but engaging snippets into his thought process, providing character tidbits on social media to satisfy his fans and perhaps to keep gauging the interest. Over the course of four years, he has mirrored his audience's desire for more diversity, even in his own creation. As time continues to pass on, I admit that I do think it is important he's allowed to continue this story. As time continues to pass, the audience, which in the flesh has maintained for four years, does deserve closure. And by closure, I suppose I mean many things not strictly limited to a definitive end or, or the lingering questions still left unanswered. The continued connection to Dominic's characters and the relevancy of the issues he places within his narrative, for example. I am optimistic he'll find a way to continue. After all, at the very least, who doesn't love a bit of zombie telly? Thanks, Danielle. For our last piece, we're moving away from screens entirely and focusing on the age-old question. It's Halloween in three days and I haven't bought a costume yet. What do I do? Writer Audrey Gillis came in to tell us about her five fantastic last-minute and low-effort Halloween dress-up ideas. I will be the first to admit that I love Halloween. It is my favourite time of year. I love the cute decorations, the costumes and the sweets. As soon as October 1st comes, the pumpkin string lights are hung up, the ghost ornaments are out, and everything Halloween themed starts sneaking into my living room. However, one thing I dislike about Halloween, preparing for nights out can be so expensive if you're told to dress up last minute. Or if you don't know where to go, and like many students, me, are absolutely skint. I'm also not the most patient when it comes to costume creation, so I prefer something quick and low effort. Perhaps you loathe dressing up, and the less that you need to think about it, the better. Well, have no fear. In my years of Halloween last-minute preparations, I've become quite good at costuming on a super tight budget. Are you feeling the Halloween pressure? Could you care less about costumes? Then I have five costumes under £10 that you can whip up in an hour or less and still enjoy the party. So let's crack on with number one, ceiling fan. One year, I went as a ceiling fan due to being asked to go out two hours before we met. I painted Clyde side ceilings on a cheapo t-shirt, around £4 from Primark. I made a paper flag saying, go ceilings, as if they were a sports team. It doesn't have to be neatly written or fancy. Just use a marker or some kids paint, all from Poundland. This went down a storm as soon as the bunny dropped. I'll definitely get some laughs and some sighs. Number two, the black cat. Nothing is more topical at this time of year than a black cat. Luckily, these are relatively simple to dress as. All you need is a hairband, some paper, and some cheap black eyeliner. 
All of these you can also get, guess again, in Poundland. And you only need to wear some black clothes to make the outfit complete. To make the headband, simply colour some black ears on paper using a marker. Cut these out and sellotape these onto the hairband. Give yourself a cute wee nose and whiskers using the eyeliner pencil and off you go. If you prefer to buy the headband because this is too much effort, Tam Shepherd's Trick Shop is the name in Halloween accessories in Glasgow. Located in Queen Street, you can pop in and find any bits and bobs you need at a budget-friendly price. Number 3. The Ghost The spookiest of all traditional costumes, all you need for this is a cheap bedsheet. Premark sells single sheets for between four and six pound. Cut out two eye holes and pop it over your head. You're now free to boogie. That was, that was awful, I'm so sorry. But please, don't drink your beer through the sheet because it will get so messy and disgusting. Number four, a bunch of grapes. Are you feeling fruity? All you need here is sellotape and a bunch of purple or green balloons. Poundland is definitely your friend. Blow up these balloons, sellotape them to yourself, and voila, you're now your very own vintage. Bonus points though if you go next year as a bottle of wine. Number five, a nudist on strike. This is the easiest costume of all. Grab a piece of card, a bit of string, and write nudist on strike on the card. Tape the card to your string, and wear this sign round your neck. Nudists famously don't wear clothes, as the name suggests. So feel free to wear as many as you'd like with this costume. It's almost winter, so double points for adding scarves and hats. Whatever your costume choice this year, I hope you have a great time and it'd be amazing to see you use these ideas. Why not tag Strathclyde Telegraph on Facebook and Twitter and show us your creations? And if you're not dressing up, go and enjoy your time with your friends regardless. That's what it's all about after all. There are so many events taking place for Halloween in Glasgow that you can showcase your amazing low-effort creations here. The spirit of Halloween lives in the homemade. Regardless of the effort put in, everybody appreciates a homemade costume. Now if you don't mind, I'm away to see if there's some discount loaves in Lidl. This year I'm going as a gingerbread girl. This podcast was produced by me, Callum Ogilvie, with help from Justin Bowie, Audrey Gillis, Kirsty Crawford, Andrew McKissick, and Danielle Riddle. All of their original articles are now available on strathclydetelegraph.com. I should mention that the podcast format will change from next month. We'll be having guests on to discuss their stories instead of contributors on to read their articles out. Although, this was really fun to try. Thanks also to Frida Moen, Linda Mohammed. Molly McKee, Maisie McGregor, Heather McIlwraith, there's a lot of mix, Nathan Matheson, and Charlotte Winspear. John Anthony is the paper's editor-in-chief. If you're interested in joining the Strathclyde Telegraph, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on our website at strathclydetelegraph.com. You don't need to be a journalist student to write, so why not come along and join?